1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
2: Welcome to The Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news out of China, especially through our daily access newsletter. Subscribe now at subchina.com, where you can also find great reported pieces as well as trenchant op-eds. It's a feast of business, political and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, which I'd be heartily sick of by now, we're in not such a lovely place. Joining me from the equally Edenic woods just southwest of Nashville, Tennessee, is Jin known among gringos as Jeremy Goldcorn, the man all the smart money is on in that closely watched race for appointment as postmaster general in the next administration. He's odds-on favorite, uh, if all the pun- punters out there. The London betting shops give even better odds if Trump wins the election.
0: <laughs>
2: for now, we are delighted you can continue to coast the show before you take on that position. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you?
0: <laughs> Good morning, people. Oh, well, at least it's morning over here. Good evening to uh, others in other parts across the world. Um, I'm sad to report that I I think the post really is failing here in the United States, which is a very sad thing. I haven't got any mail for uh, about three days. And uh, it is quite depressing. When I first moved here, my wife had to constantly reassure me that, you know, if my green card was coming in the mail, it was actually coming in the mail. Because having lived the rest of my life, mostly in China and South Africa... Nothing in the mail is secure, and it appears the United States is um, joining that sad
2: state of affairs. Anyway, Anyway. let's get on with the show. So, So this year, a beloved podcast that was started by an American guy and a South African guy celebrated its 10th anniversary. Isn't that right, Jeremy?
0: It is, but that is a trick question. There were actually two podcasts launched that year featuring Yankees and South Africans. The Seneca podcast was only one of them.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, the other podcast, of course, is the fabulous China in Africa podcast, which we are so proud to say has been part of the Seneca network since earlier this year. Today, we welcome Eric Olander and Cobus von Staden to Seneca to celebrate the 500th episode of their fantastic show. Both Eric and Kobus have extensive backgrounds in journalism. Uh, Eric, like me, is a alum of UC Berkeley, an obligatory go bears for me. Go bears, yeah. go bears. <laughs> and uh, it was formerly based in Shanghai. He now calls Ho Chi Minh City home. Corbus von Staden
0: is the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, South Africa's leading international policy think tank, which is in my native Johannesburg. Gentlemen, welcome to Seneca and congratulations on the milestone. Well, thank you so much, Kaiser
3: Jeremy. It's great to be back and on
2: such an auspicious day for us. Indeed.
1: Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much.
2: Well, well, congratulations, Kobus. Congratulations, Eric. Uh, as is customary on anniversaries and such, we do have to hear the story of how the two of you met and other pieces of your origin story. You guys go back a while. We do go back, in fact, uh, and we didn't meet in
3: person, actually, for the first six years of our relationship. So it was uh, it was an online affair for the first six years. <laughs> It, it started back in, and I'll make this as quick as possible, but in starting in the mid-2000s, I started going to Kinshasa, and I eventually moved to Kinshasa in 2010, in the first part of 2010. And I, that's where I kind of started writing about China and Africa. And then when I moved to Paris and was starting to work at Radio France International and then later became the editor-in-chief of France 24, which is the kind of French CNN I just got too busy, and so I went out onto Twitter and I said, does anybody want to help me with this thing called a podcast and help me kind of do this China-Africa project thing? And this guy from South Africa who at that time was working at SABC and also teaching, uh, you know, said, sure, I'll do it. And lo and behold, uh, you know, the rest is history. We met on Twitter, and for the first six years, until 2016, we'd never met met each other, but every week, now it's three, four times a week, we talk to each other, and I, I kind of say I've got my, you know, he's my, my work husband, and I've got my wife at home, so that's, that's the way it is. <laughs>
1: yeah i i had um I was just back in South Africa after living in Japan for a, a bunch of years where I went to grad school and so in grad school I was focusing on um on media studies but particularly then on on the flow of Japanese media to africa um and when I came back to South Africa, I suddenly realized that oh the china thing is really big you know it's um when i when I saw it on the ground particularly as a reporter, I realized that china's influence in in Africa as a whole is growing very quickly so I then followed eric because he was one of the only people who was actually talking about that on Twitter. And yeah, then it it, it developed from there. Right, fantastic. What was it, do you gentlemen, think about
0: the year 2010 and China-related podcasts? The two of ours started. The other 10-year-old very popular China podcast that started that year is Laszlo Montgomery's China History podcast. Do either of you have a theory as to why that year was so auspicious for China podcasts? I think it was a new channel
3: at that time. There had been a whole bunch of China blogs, oh, yeah. if you remember, and you guys, obviously with Dan Wei, you guys were doing some amazing things, Jeremy there in that space in terms of, and and it was there was just an opportunity to try something new and to break out into a different space and to reach a different audience. The audiences back then, if you recall, were tiny on podcasting. I mean, nobody was really listening to downloadable audio. It was really about 2011, 2012, when iTunes really started to ramp up that people did it. But it was just something new. And then the hardcore, really, in many ways, it was the downway audience. These hardcore China files and China watchers would be, uh, were there. And that's who we initially targeted.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was the smartphone, too. I mean, just that, I think, I can't remember what year it was when they first started putting the podcast app actually onto iPhones but i think it couldn't have been long after 2010 so that that made it a whole lot easier to made it sort of make, make sense rather than having to download something and then sideload it onto your onto your computer with a usb cord or something like that it uh it just made a lot more sense uh what did what did you guys set out to do with the show originally uh, and has the mission changed at all over the years i mean Certainly, you must be surprised by the growing level of interest in the show. I mean, I was just looking at your numbers. You guys are doing really pretty impressive numbers now. Yeah. So we originally started this, and, and this kind of went a little bit
3: to when I first went to Kinshasa. And my, my background, if I started going to China when I was eighteen, like you guys, I spent most of the nineties in China. It was at AP and CNN and BBC there for for a long time. Mm-hmm. So my focus was really on China, not on Africa. But when I started going to Kinshasa, I came loaded with the coverage of the Chinese in Africa from The Guardian, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, which was very much the the narrative that we still hear today, that China's colonizing Africa, China's conquering Africa, China's taking over. It was this very aggressive, very negative type of coverage. When I got to Kinshasa, I started asking people who were there, what do you think of the Chinese? And later when I was working there, I asked my staff that same question, and they gave me these really textured, nuanced, complicated answers. Mm. I like this, but I don't like that. And I said, that's my story right there. It's the complexity of it all that I enjoy the most. And so we set out to really explore that complexity, that the good and the bad in the China-Africa relationship sit side by side one another. If you only think that what the Chinese are doing in Africa, and this applies to a lot of places... It's that it's the worst thing in the world. You're missing a big part of the story. Conversely, if you only think that what China's doing in Africa is great, you're missing a big part of the story. So we try to occupy that middle space, which is to celebrate the complexity and to not always have an answer at the end of every show. We really oftentimes celebrate the fact that we want to leave our audience more confused
2: <laughs> than when they started,
1: and that is that means we've done our job well
2: after our own heart, huh, Jeremy?
1: I think also, you know, kind of one of the big changes has been at the at the beginning of um, of when we started covering it, the people who were focusing on China-Africa relations were overwhelmingly from the global north. It was mostly Americans and, and Europeans who, who were interested in it, and and I think you know because because they were they saw it as an emerging trend, but also one that had kind of geopolitical implications for their own countries. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing lots and lots of very young people people um, in Africa and in China, like engaging in it in lots of different ways. So that was also kind of an important shift for us to try and kind of move younger and younger, um, and then also to try and kind of pull in as many Chinese and African voices as possible. Do you
2: think that's reflected in the listening audience to the show? I'm not really sure exactly where they're located geographically, but do you have sense?
3: Yeah, I mean, when we look at the data, it shows that each of our social media platforms and our distribution channels reaches a different audience Hmm. and the podcast still is is very much heavily geared towards the the global north even though there are there is a growing listenership in africa less so in china china the listenership is behind the vpn right Uh, it beijing is one of our largest cities but i'm convinced that it's mostly the expat diplomatic international community in beijing it's not chinese people right right. um even though our site and interestingly Uh, And this is something I think Jeremy would be envious about. Our site is still up. And I can't figure out for the life of me why it's still up. Uh, It is, I mean, because we pull no punches on Xinjiang. Our email, incidentally, doesn't get through to anybody in China. Oh, interesting. But our website is accessible. And in, in most cities, it's accessible. In Xi'an, for example, it's not. But in Shanghai and Beijing and in, in, in Guangzhou, it is. It, it, again, it varies province to province in
2: some cases. you got to share your secret That I find Jeremy. very interesting. Jeremy keeps getting us blocked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eric, I don't know if you should have said that on the show. You're going to well, jinx it. Well, you know, <laughs> I just kind of figure it's going to happen when it happens. Yeah. Yeah, right. it's going to
3: happen. <laughs> exactly.
0: It's going to happen. And
3: so be it. You know, it happens when it happens. right. right yeah. Right,
0: right. So, uh, you know, one approach I think that comes through from your show and something I think both of you have mentioned is, is that the Chinese are really the only people who've taken Africa seriously uh, um, as, you know, the last emerging market. Uh, it's still difficult, you've noted, for Europeans and North Americans to take Africa seriously as a place to do business, uh, as a market, and that there still tends to be this idea that Africa needs aid uh, rather than trade. Um, Can you tell our listeners how you arrived at that conclusion and what the evidence for that is?
1: Well, I think essentially the the clearest way of looking at it is simply um, to see what the Chinese are doing in Africa. Um, so much of what they're doing is is not only selling Chinese stuff to Africans, which of course is a is a big part of their job there, but also tailoring their products to African markets. So a, a great example is, is the mobile phone company Transian, which has um, they made a ton of money um, selling very very low um, low level phones to Africa. Some of them are, are you know mini feature phones. Some of them, like that, can operate on two G networks, but they also tailor the design of the phones so that the specs are better for for uh, for picture taking of um, dark skin people. That they can take more than one SIM card because Africans frequently have more than one SIM card because they move from kind of network to network um, as they move through the city. So these these little tweaks, you know, show that they that they actually take the consumer market seriously, and in response trans African consumers have, have really supported them. You know, um, Transcend had an IPO of like four billion dollars. You know, I think last year. So, so I think it's you know that that's an example of of not only pumping cheap stuff you know into into Africa as just another place to sell the same thing, but actually tailoring the products to what Africans need. Hmm.
3: And one of the, the the most important aspects that regular listeners of our show will hear me say over and over again: the Chinese show up. Right. Bottom line, they're there. I mean, Wang Yi or the foreign minister starts every year. It's customary that the first overseas trip is in Africa. Xi Jinping regularly goes. Uh, Ministerial uh, ministers, head of provinces, you know, high-level officials are constantly going. Uh, President Trump has never been. It's a big day when the Secretary of State goes. They, the Americans, just don't show up, and that's a very important thing. Even Europeans just don't show up. So the mere fact. That they are showing up really speaks volumes to the commitment that they're making, and in Africa and in many parts of of the world, relationships are everything It's all about Guanxi right I mean, and sh- you can't do that remotely and through uh subordinates. you have to be there and and that's a big part of it and and so much really is born from the fact that they actually are just physically there
0: um so th- we've talked about two aspects then of China's approach to Africa, uh, you know, seeing it as a market and then showing up. Uh, what other conclusions have you drawn about China's approach to Africa in the last 10 years?
3: Well, it's it's changed radically. And this is one of the themes of what we've done in the past, say, year, year and a half. When we first started doing the show, it was very much geared towards resource extraction uh, and very much the conventional narratives of China going out uh, Hu Jintao, you know, launched this going out initiative when he was president, and and really Africa was the 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 barrier, the place with the lowest barrier of entry. So going into South America was difficult culturally. Going into Europe and North America was complicated from a regulatory and a cost point of view. Asia obviously has a lot of historical complexities that back then, 10, 15 years ago, was, was more complicated. Africa had a very low barrier to entry, and the United States and Europe... Uh, disengaged. They really didn't pay much attention. And so here it was a market that the Chinese could enter in to engage both in resource extraction and, as Kobus then men- mentioned, in terms of selling things. That was the relationship in the first part of it. And that's where very much we heard about this kind of colonialism type of narrative, because that did mirror in some ways what Europe was doing in Africa as well. What we've seen now over the past 10 years, and there's a great statistic that i like to quote from David Shin, who is the uh, great China-Africa scholar at George Washington University, where 10 years ago, 30% of Chinese imported oil came from Africa, from three countries in Africa, Republic of Congo, the Sudans, back then they were in Angola. Today, it's less than 18%, and it's only one country, Angola. Most of what Africa sells China is oil, mineral, and timber. The fact is, now that the Belt and Road is so much bigger than it was, China does $100 billion more in trade with South America today than it does with Africa. Wow! Africa's economic po- importance to China is falling precipitously and will never come back. So because what it can buy from Africa, it can now buy from lots of different places. It's buying timber from here in Southeast Asia. It's buying minerals and critical minerals from, uh, from South America. And so for the most part, we're seeing the trade flat and then go down. Where China now really values Africa, though, is politically. And that's very, very important. It's 54 votes at the United Nations. It's 54 votes at the World Health Organization, at the Food and Agriculture Organization. Go through the list of things. And we're seeing the political value go up and the economic value go
2: down. That's fascinating. Probably a lot of people are completely unaware of that trade statistic. I had no idea. Personally, I had no idea... That Latin American trade had so outstripped China-Africa trade. Wow.
3: Yeah, and a lot of that's concentrated in Brazil and Argentina for agricultural products. And as the Chinese have started winding down some of their purchases of agricultural products from the United States, they've shifted that to to Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and some of those other countries. But South America trade is, is now significantly larger than Africa trade.
1: I think the one exception there is in tech. Um, you know, like I think as as things get harder and harder for Huawei everywhere else, like the the one really welcome place for it is in Africa. It's it's built a ton of African networks. It's involved in all different levels, everything from like undersea cables to handsets. Um, it's setting up smart city projects all over the continent. So it's this one in, in kind of space where I think you know African, uh, you know, Africa is a very friendly place for Chinese tech. Um, you know, uh, on the back of of you know it's the whole world becoming less friendly to it um, and then the other thing is I think is that also that the relationship has become a lot more complex and it's added a lot more features I think on the back of pressure from the African side so for example there's a lot of emphasis on um, on skills transfer and training in Africa and I think the Chinese have kind of been <laughs> kind of dragged you know by by kind of into providing a ton of training and a ton of skills transfer um, in Africa and it's been slowly kind of worked into all of these different like you know the kind of diplomatic platforms and so on that where where the the relationship is negotiated the kind of the um, the mandate you you know kind of given to the relationship has, has kind of widened from because of pressure from the African side to include all of these kind of soft infrastructure mm-hmm. services
2: capacity building and all that exactly yeah uh, it's interesting you, you've talked about how the the relationship itself has become more and more complex, Eric. You started off talking about how you've wanted to complicate the narrative on on China Africa. Have you seen the narrative and and I mean in the Anglophone media's reporting of it or in in sort of popular scholarship uh, have you seen that narrative actually get more complicated and, and I mean that in a good way or are, are there still a lot of the same binary tropes that have plagued it all along? Do you think that you've made headway or that you and the rest of the scholarly community have made headway?
3: I think there is some progress. That is, there's some great reporters out there. Ed Wong, who's a friend of The Mm Seneca Show, he's written about Africa and from a Chinese, looking from China outwards. uh, And he's had some very great coverage on that. Max Barak is one of the Washington Post correspondents. Danielle Paquette also, and uh, also with The Washington Post. And they've done some great work. So it has become more nuanced Overall, though, I would say the durability of some of the outdated, anachronistic thinking uh, remains, in part because views of China have become so polarized, particularly in the United States and Europe, and they've hardened so much. So bringing a nuance into that discourse on China is now more complicated. So when you talk about, and this is the same challenge which you guys have on your show, when you talk about some of the more positive things that the Chinese are doing, you're then, a lot of people will interpret that as an endorsement of the CCP, as some type of forgiveness of all the other excesses that the Chinese do on the negative side. And again, you get pulled into this binary conversation, is China good or is China bad? And that's where we are, unfortunately, today in a lot of the discourse in the US. In Africa, it's very, very complicated because it depends a lot on what country you're talking about. There is no Africa, there is, it goes country by country, depending on the level of democracy and press freedom, the views on China change dramatically in what we see in social media and the press. So it's it's very, very nuanced there. Hmm.
0: There, there are a few things I think we'd like to get back to on, on that question, but maybe I can ask uh, about the show again, uh, the, your podcast. Um, one shift that I think uh, ha- has become quite clear, uh, maybe from a year or two ago, it seems like there are suddenly many more African voices uh, as well as voices from Chinese stakeholders on the show. Was this something that was done deliberately or uh, did it just become easier to get more Africans on the show uh, with uh, growing telecoms infrastructure and uh, increased uh, academic and civic concern uh, for China's involvement in the continent?
1: It, it's it was partly that, um, partly that that there were just a lot more um, young Africans, you know, entering the space. Um, you know, there, there isn't a there isn't a strong um, academic infrastructure for Asia studies in in Africa. It's it's, it's quite rare to, to have a, an African university that gives people the the kind of basics of, of of Asian studies. So so that was a challenge, and you know, I think that's improved a lot. And and so there's a lot of a lot more young Africans interested. In the issue, and also a lot more. The, the networks have expanded, so it's actually easier to call them and speak with them. Because in the past, we would call like Harare, and then just get cut off. You know, which is a nightmare. And so, so that has improved. We also tried at some stage. We 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 decided that it it makes sense if we are a China and Africa podcast, particularly one and we have to be you know kind of frank about it. Run by two white guys then it's really important for us to, to maximize the Chinese and African voices. So, so that's what we've, what we've tried to do. It's not only
3: Chinese and African voices that we're trying to emphasize. We're also really focusing on youth voices. You simply cannot talk about Africa today, a continent where the median age is 19.7 years old, and have you know, people over only in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. That's ridiculous. And similarly, in China, there's a huge discrepancy between the younger generation and the older generation. And we started to see this a lot in our coverage of the ivory trade back in 2016, 2017, where there was a, a, just an overwhelming gap in how young people saw in conservation in China compared to the older generations. Mm, mm. So we started bringing in guests like Huang Hongxiang from China House and others and his students that he was working with. And it really brought this new energy into it. So just last week on the show, we, we brought on two high school students who went down to Guangzhou to reflect on the discrimination that occurred there in April. And getting that youth perspective to us has been really, really important. And the other area that we're focusing a lot on, which you'll notice, is we want to bring in a lot more female voices too. So not just having male analysts, which is traditionally what a lot of these policy podcasts tend to default to. And so we really make an effort to find young people, women, and people from impacted countries.
2: That's great, Eric. And uh, I want to shout out that show with the the, the two high school students. Um, There were a total of, I think, four of them originally who had made a documentary. Make sure to to, to send me a link somewhere where, where people can actually see the documentary that they made. That would be fantastic
3: yeah, you know, what was great about that. It was one of the first pieces of video that we've seen that didn't come through the official kind of censored state-controlled media. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's out on YouTube. so it's it's out there now. So it's beyond the reach of uh, of our friends in Beijing. And it's a great little <laughs> <laughs> well, it's never beyond the reach, right? But nonetheless, it is really interesting in the fa- in the sense that the the narrative you got from these kids was so more complex than what we've seen out of state media. And again, it, to me it was really refreshing to see
2: what they had to say. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you're talking to a lot more people, but isn't it getting harder? I know that it is the case for a lot of journalists. They're saying that their access has been made a whole lot harder in recent years. Has that been your experience in trying to book higher profile or higher ranking academics and and even diplomats from China for the show? It is
3: so dispiriting and so frustrating for us Uh, that we I mean we really again we really try to bring in all voices to the discussion Uh, we had Shen Shihui who is from CGTN Uh, a lot of people are not happy that we feature people from CGTN but we feel that it's important that people hear these voices we feel that it's important to hear the Chinese side because simply having a discussion about China Africa without the Chinese voice in it is ridiculous but yet at the same time, people who I've known for 15 years who, who trust the show, they just tell me they say it's not a good time, you know, and there's no incentive for them to talk about policy and politics in this era. They don't get promoted. They don't get recognition for it. It's not like the think tanks in the U.S. where the more media coverage you get, the more exposure you get, that actually helps you review. And so they fear that if they say something wrong, it's not going to look well for them. And so it's harder to book them, which is really frustrating. But what we've done now is we're trying to find people outside the the mainstream. Yet, So what we're doing is, like we just had Hang Li Wei from, from SOAS in London. We had the students. Uh, we're trying to find these other voices that are not necessarily at the center of the think tanks or the professors. So professors, for example, who we've had several times on the show, I've invited back this year, they say no. And it's a very polite no. It's just not right now. It's not a good time. But they, it's the Hollywood no, where they never call you back. Right. And it's unfortunate. But we're really trying to, uh, to, to bring more on. We've had Ambassador Guangwei Ling this year, um, who's the first AU ambassador from China. So we've had some. And we have to work really hard to get more Chinese voices. But we really try to have a balance, and, and especially for our African listeners who don't always have an opportunity to interact with Chinese stakeholders. And so for people to understand directly the Chinese worldview, which is so different than the European and U.S. worldview, we think it's so important to hear from these voices. So we're trying very hard, but it's not easy.
0: On a related question and going back to something you were talking uh, about just now, Quibus, perhaps you could expand on... Um, the lack of expertise in the lack of Asian studies uh, departments in African universities. Um, Is it true that there hasn't been much growth uh, in expertise about China within Africa's universities and within foreign ministries or not? And how would you compare the situation to the development of Chinese expertise uh, on Africa?
1: Mm. Yeah, there's been some um but you know there, there's been some increase like the you know um in the I think the University of Botswana for example has, has some um, Asian studies programs um it's it's slowly growing but you know but but it's very slow because the funding for African universities are you know is, is so scarce um also a similar situation African think tanks frequently tend to be um funded by European development agencies um and um, uh, and, and you know that money is is slowly diminishing um so so it's difficult on the African side on the chinese side it's impressive you know kind of there you have like Hausa, you know kind of language programs at universities um you know lots of lots of people learning african languages uh, very kind of high level of of um of african knowledge among think tankers um but it's also you know it it, it does also um it, it's framed you know kind of within within kind of Chinese preoccupations and Chinese ways of thinking and Chinese intellect, particularly contemporary intellectual traditions. Hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's not necessarily that that there's so much knowledge and therefore things go smoother. You know, it's, it's like there, there's, still a, there's still a lot of kind of like knowledge gaps on both sides.
2: So a theme that's emerged in your coverage lately has been this schism, not between China and Africa per se, but as you guys put it in a very recent newsletter, which I actually just read this morning, uh, between African governments and African populations, one again, as you say, thrown into high relief by China's growing presence on the continent. Uh, th- that's that's fascinating to me, and I think we've we've talked about the same phenomenon. Jeremy pointed out the similarities when we had an American diplomat stationed in the Caribbean talking about the same thing. Um, how there is this this this. Disconnect between populations and, and elites, and especially governing elites. Can you talk about the major inflection points in the development of this trend? When did when did you start taking notice of this, and what seems to have have changed uh, the or sort of widened the gap between elites and, and populations on on China?
1: I, we've noticed this for, for a long time I think you know Ch- China's relationship with Africa is is overwhelmingly kind of bilateral government to government relationships so I think there was already for a long time an assumption in China that, um, that if the government's on board then the people will follow um, and you know <laughs> like as we've seen in many cases in Africa that's not necessarily <laughs> the right. truth because frequently there isn't such great communication between the government and the people or um, the people are you know kind of pissed off with the government anyway um, so so, so we've seen cases where, for example, um, a, a bunch of years ago, a Chinese company was building a gas pipeline, I think in Tanzania. Um, and, you know, kind of, th- it had been completely cleared. Everything was agreed with the government. And then when they arrived in the in the rural area where the pipeline was supposed to go, they just faced protests left and right from the local community. Um, because the local community hadn't been informed. They had their own set of priorities. They, they were upset around issues of the value of their land. Uh, you know, a lot of these kind of Problems. So, so you you see that kind of going back. And the Chinese tend to not be fantastic with communicating, you know, kind of their initiatives in Africa because they're so dependent on on state media, um, which tends to avoid any controversy. Um, so frequently, um, there is a, a kind of a narrative that we see where, particularly from opposition parties, where it's very easy to use an incumbent party's relationship with China as a stick to beat them with. So, you know, opposition parties in Africa tend to campaign to use China as a campaign issue against. Their, op- their 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 mm-hmm. opponents in in the elections, um, and then frequently you would see like you know Michael Sata in Zambia was is a classic right. example where you would campaign hard against the Chinese like threatening to kick them out, and then when you win the Chinese are your BFFs. So it's <laughs> you know it's that it's that kind of switch over you know between opposition politics and incumbent politics in Africa, um, and you know kind of it, it it becomes kind of more exacerbated by the fact that the state is really a very big service. provider in Africa, frequently, more, they, they provide more services in African societies than many other places. So, you know, kind of if there's anxiety about the state or, or suspicion about the state, then it becomes very easy to assume that corrupt people in government are in the pocket of the Chinese, or that they're selling out the local people to the Chinese. And it's a, it's a very difficult narrative to disprove.
3: Well, it's also very similar to what we know in the United States, where China is a domestic political issue as much as a foreign policy issue. That's right. So you see, for example, the rival presidential candidates today saying, who's tougher on China? Who's going to crack down more? And at the end of the day, I just read statistics that Chinese exports to the United States are surging, are doing very, very well. So there's a disconnect between the political rhetoric and the economic reality that oftentimes exists. The same happens in Africa as well. Uh, Just yesterday, in fact... An opposition leader in Zambia said if the Patriotic Front, which is the ruling uh, Edgar Lungu's ru- ruling party, wins, then we're going to be turned into a Chinese colony, effectively. <laughs> now, again, this is an opportunity to, to really whack Edgar Lungu, not necessarily to go after the Chinese. In Nigeria, it's the same way as well where people are using, and particularly in the House of Representatives, uh, opposition politicians are using the Chinese loan issue, for example, as much for domestic political gain as they are to bring attention to concern about the debt. Nigeria, and I wrote about this today quite a bit, is a very interesting case. This is a country that has about $3 billion of Chinese loans. Less than 4% of the country's total loan portfolio is to China. There is, in their... You know, it's very clearly articulated as to what those loans are going to do. But yet the country is in an uproar over Chinese loans. I contend that that's as much about opposition to President Buhari as it is about the Chinese and the concerns related to the debt. So it's very hard for observers on the outside to separate when they see ah the anti-Chinese sentiment in the civil society. They go, you see, China sucks, (laughs) when in fact it's actually more complicated than that. And it's very important. One critical distinction, Jeremy, is the fact that a lot of people can't separate the government-to-government relations and the civil society relations. So China's ties with ruling elites are solid as can be. There's not a president or prime minister on the continent who has put any distance between themselves and China...
0: Even at the height of the it, except, crisis. except uh, may I point out, Iswatini e and uh, the unrecognized <laughs> <laughs> Republic Somaliland. <Smililand>. Yes, <laughs> the self
3: declared state of Somaliland. But those are the only two that, but everybody else is right up there. And when you see these events that CGTN puts on with African ambassadors in Beijing, and they're just blowing rainbows. Uh, you know, towards the Chinese. It it really is kind of shocking because then at the same time, you look at what's on social media and oftentimes in the Nigerian, South African and Kenyan press, which tend to be the most, uh, you know, vibrant and dynamic and open on the continent. And it's just like rage against the Chinese. And so I think for outside observers, you have to differentiate and distinguish between those two. Very similar in terms of the approach with the United States. Civil society will oftentimes have very defined views about Trump or about the United States foreign policy, but yet government to government ties remain quite pragmatic. So again, we see a lot of similarities. There's not a lot of exceptionalism here if we actually apply other foreign policy models to it as well.
0: How much did Guangzhou uh, change uh, all of this? And I'm speaking, oh, of course, huge. of the racist incidents uh, in the southern Chinese city. Uh, people being uh, evicted, Africans being evicted from their apartments or denied uh, treatment uh, for COVID-19, etc. And this, of course, was a big Uh, became a a big thing on African social media did this make a significant change to the way civil society or let's say the way ordinary people in Africa see China or is it a blip that
2: will uh, uh, be forgotten about next year did it affect elite opinion of China too
1: it changed a lot and also not that much it changed a lot in terms of um, of driving uh, a real point of contention between China and Africa out into the open um, to the extent that for example there there's um, w- there was widely circulated video of the speaker of the Nigerian um, Parliament uh, summoning the Chinese ambassador and then forcing him to watch the videos of the of the Africans being kicked out of their houses in Guangzhou and like you know demanding a, an answer so you know that was unprecedented in in China-Africa diplomacy. And there was a a real, I think it was just still ongoing kind of civil society backlash against China about, about it. At the same time, the Chinese, you know, kind of they... Put together, kind of a makeshift apology, only to to, to elites, never to you know, never a, a widely circulated popular apology to the population. Um, they they explained it away in terms of you know, um, kind of overzealousness in terms of COVID-19 mitigation, and then moved on. And the, and and largely, the African governments moved on with them mm. because uh, because they just have so many other deal, things that they have to deal with with China. You know, kind of they 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 can't have the relationship blown up about this issue.
0: I mean, who cares about a few people getting evicted when you've got a train track to build?
1: Yeah, and there's been yeah. people being evicted in Africa too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yes. but it,
3: it really it changed it, i to me, I called it a rupture in the relationship. A rupture is a break, but it's not it wasn't a permanent break. but it really was a shock to the system for a couple of different reasons, <laughs> one for a lot of young people, and again, let's let's focus on the fact that these videos started showing up into social media feeds. And Kobus brought out the interesting point, social media feeds that were running on the backbone of Huawei. So there's a certain irony there that only because of the Chinese networking were able people able to see this. But it really kind of showed this idea that, you know, for all the flowery talk that the Chinese talk about brotherhood and all-weather friends and we've been with you where the West screws you and the West is terrible and they colonized you, you know, we're here. We're, we're in the trenches. We're third-world developing country friends and partners and we're never going to deviate from you. And I think a lot of people looked and said, yeah, you know what? You're just as crappy as everybody else. <laughs> and what they saw was they saw they, they're accustomed to... To the abuse that people met out in the suburbs of Paris, in Berlin and Stockholm. Because Cobus made this interesting point in one of our shows where he said that on any given Tuesday in the suburbs of Paris or suburbs of Berlin, there's far more discrimination against Africans and black people than there was that happened in Guangzhou. The anger and the rage about what happened in Guangzhou was disproportionate in some ways to, to 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 the act itself. And and that was very surprising. And I think it really was this idea of the expectation versus the reality. And I don't think people have recovered from it. I think particularly in civil society, and the media, when you hear the litany of grievances that young people and, and journalists have, the events in Guangzhou are still on the list. Now, here's what's very interesting. The way that the Chinese look at it and the way that a lot of African stakeholders and those outside look at it, totally different. Because obviously in China, they don't have access to Facebook, to Twitter, to WhatsApp, where a lot of these videos were circulating. Zhou Pingjian, who was the Chinese ambassador to Nigeria at the time when Kobus mentioned that uh, Speaker Femi, the, the Nigerian speaker of the house, showed him these videos. He said, have you seen these videos? And the Chinese ambassador, Ambassador Joe, said, no, I haven't. And that's remarkable. I mean, this was top news everywhere. I believe him when he said he hadn't seen it. Because they don't focus on Facebook the same way. And so this, there was this, they saw two totally different things in this, in what happened there. And then the Chinese, in typical Chinese fashion, swooped down, you know, they had all the flowers, they had all the events, they kind of, you know, button cleaned everything up, and they said, see, there's no racism and discrimination, and everybody's happy. And then on CGTN, they featured all these uh, happy Tanzanians and Ugandans and Kenyans and saying, don't you love living in China? Yes, I love living in China. (laughs) And to them, that was it. Problem solved, let's move on And it's it still lingers for a lot Of people, and there's a really Sour taste in their mouth, understand? Yeah,
2: absolutely
0: So, I uh- to, to continue on the same theme of uh, the disconnect between African elites and, and people and their views to, uh, about China, Eric, I think, well, it was either Eric or <laughs> it was one of you two, uh, has talked about how China's vaccine diplomacy uh, is a, a kind of a high-risk gambit that might actually end up highlighting this disconnect. Can you expand on that idea a little? Yeah, so this is something that Kobus and I have been thinking about a lot now because
3: China is the only country in the world, Russia to some extent as well, but certainly China is, is really the only country in the world that has made vaccines part of its diplomatic outreach in Africa. Uh, President Xi has come out time and time again, and that's been then echoed throughout the chain of command in the Chinese foreign ministry, that when a vaccine is available, Africa and developing countries writ large will be a priority for distribution. Uh, Today, what I've been thinking about, and Kobus and I have had a number of conversations on this, which is, it sounds great. That's really wonderful, because typically, developing countries, low-income countries are at the end of the line when it comes to these things. And China is talking about, upfront in its main diplomatic push, that says, we're doing debt relief, we're bringing PPE in, and by the way, when a vaccine's available, we're going to bring it to you. I think the Chinese see an opportunity that... Europe and the United States are so inward focused on this. Donald Trump has not mentioned the f- Africa once and certainly not going to give it to developing countries. That's not been part of his agenda, nor has it been part of Angela Merkel's or, 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 or Macron's as well in France. So I think they see an opportunity. What we started to think about today was there's a massive risk that's associated with this. Distributing vaccines is not like distributing, I don't know, Coca-Cola. Right. It has to be refrigerated. It has to be cared for. It has to be delivered properly. So start to imagine now if it goes wrong. People start dying. People, there's unintended consequences. There's, there's, it, it doesn't work that well. And then what we've seen in Kenya, Somalia, South Africa, and a number of other countries is PPE corruption. So all of a sudden, all of these vaccines start going to the rich and people don't get them or they go missing and whatnot. The Chinese then are highly exposed because they lose control of the vaccine. So somebody else is going to deliver it. Now, let's say it sits out in the, in the sun in 35 degrees Celsius or 100 degree heat, and it gets ruined. And then some guy then gets a shot of bad vaccine and gets sick. Who are they going to blame? They're going to blame the Chinese. They're going to say the Chinese vaccine sucks. Right. And so it's a high-risk, high-reward venture. They At one time, they can say, we're saving and ending COVID-19 in Africa, but at the same time, they can suffer some negative consequences if it doesn't go well. So high-risk, high-reward.
1: If it works, then... Then we, we see um, that that you know kind of it will be in, in one fell swoop it won't, won't only be a kind of a, uh, a support or the, or you know kind of a proof of the, the south south solidarity kind of we're developing countries together kind of narrative but it will also be the the world debut of the health Silk Road um, you know kind of the health aspect of the BRI um, so so you know kind of if it works it will work very well I think yeah. but if and it, it goes bad win. it'll go very right, bad. Right. Well, I mean,
2: the, the risk is accentuated by the fact that China is skipping stage three trials entirely in some areas and going straight. I mean, they're already vaccinating people in, in China uh, and not as part of a clinical trial. It's, it's, it's a very risky gambit indeed.
1: And there's, there's a precedent for that, um, where they, they did an, a malaria treatment in the Comoro Islands, um, in the Indian Ocean, off the coast of Africa, where they vaccinated the entire population with, a, with an experimental drug. Um, you know, so, so we'll see how
3: that goes. But bear in mind, too, that there's a, there's a context with which this vaccine is going to arrive in Africa. The context is, and just last week, for example, Techno, these the phones that Kobus was talking about, uh, it was re- it was discovered that back in 2018, 2019, they were pre-installed with viruses hmm. in it. And a lot of people, the reaction was, you know, made in China. And there's a context that China is one of the largest sources of counterfeit pharmaceuticals that also come from India as well and a lot of places, but China brings a lot of it in the Chinese have a reputation for low quality goods that are low priced but low quality as well counterfeit sometimes but just sometimes low cost and so there's a skepticism about made in China in Africa and this this this, this vaccines going to arrive within that context now. There may not be a lot of other choices, but that being said, the Russians are also now signing deals to to distribute. They've signed deals apparently with 20 countries, including Algeria and some other countries in Africa to distribute it. So there may be some choice other than just the Chinese vaccine. Uh, That being said, there is definitely, I think, reputationally, some very big challenges for the Chinese in Africa. There's a lot of
2: vaccine skepticism already in in Africa to begin with, uh, and uh, that's totally understandable given, again, historical context anyway i'm I'm curious gentlemen, if you think that China is actually losing interest in Africa, we've talked about this shift from uh, a preoccupation with extractive industries and so forth uh, to a, a more political focus. but there's some evidence that Beijing is just basically broadening its focus and and shifting attention northward on the continent to to North Africa and to the Middle East. I know we've spoken before about how your show is even thinking about sort of expanding its own focus to include more sort of the MENA region. What's driving that potential shift for you for you guys?
1: Well, you know, it's it, it's it comes partly from uh, from a recognition that that the Chinese don't see this kind of artificial line between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa, or between the Middle East and and North Africa, in the same way as as Western observers do. Right. So, a lot of Chinese companies are uh, that that do a lot of work in in Africa are actually based in places like Dubai, and they um and they increasingly kind of weave together not only North Africa and and the Middle East, but also, actually, the Middle East and East Africa, um, which are which are actually very close together, and they they have a, a kind of an organic relationship that you know that goes back centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a you know it's it's taking that kind of reality into into account. It's also, I think, a, a reality that. The fact that the Chinese were so successful in Africa—that they that they managed to just move in, like have like get deals, deliver projects, the end—you know, kind of that it wasn't it wasn't an aid situation, and it also wasn't a situation where you know Chinese railway engineers were you know killed by rhinos or you know something like that. So the the fact that the Chinese can simply do business in Africa actually opened up the the space for a lot of other emerging partners to also start following that model, and a lot of those are in the middle. East, so so including the UAE, particularly Turkey, also a lot, also Iran, actually, um, and so you know, kind of so so it, it just started making sense to us that that you should start looking at the two together because because I think in a lot of cases the Chinese also do
2: right, right, right.
3: Yeah, let's take one. There's an interesting story that that the BBC did an investigation in, and this really highlights the merging of the Persian Gulf, Middle East, and and Africa story. So they discovered that Wing Lung. Uh, armed attack drones were being used in Libya by the I think it was the LNA against the GNA the, the rival factions there those drones were purchased according to the BBC by the United Arab Emirates brought to Libya so we have Chinese drones purchased by the UAE being used in North Africa and that is is representative in many ways again this is a an awful story because they were used for 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 death and destruction But we're starting to see a lot of linkages in these type of stories, whether it's oil, whether it's trade, whether you're setting up real logistics hubs, large logistics hubs in the United Arab Emirates that then also cover Africa as well. Uh, That's really very interesting, a trend as well. The Djibouti base, the PLA Navy base in Djibouti, is being used going into the Gulf of Aden. This strategic partnership deal with Iran has big impacts on, again, on oil purchases and where the Chinese are buying their energy. It's changing very, very quickly. And where a country buys its energy oftentimes has an impact on its foreign policy. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, go figure. And so the linkages between the Gulf and and these stories are just overlapping with one another. And there's also just a lot of interesting similarities, parallels that we're starting to see that we think we can bring some insight to the discussion in the Middle East and Persian Gulf and at the same time learn something for our African stakeholders. And a lot of our listeners and subscribers to our newsletter are US government, European Union, development agencies who oftentimes don't make those linkages. So one of the things we try and do is connect some dots that they wouldn't necessarily make on their own.
2: No, oh, I think that's terrific. And I, I really look forward to, to you guys starting to put out newsletters and shows that address those regions more specifically. Fantastic.
0: Can you two recommend uh, some books uh, that our listeners could read? uh to enlighten them on uh china africa relations
3: yeah i just put together a list for the africa china reporting project at wits university in johannesburg of 10 books that will be out on the wits website and so i'll share that with you kaiser when that's out in the meantime I'll give you a a little bit of a a sneak preview of what we recommended. Uh, The Complete Beginner's Guide to China Africa Relations. It was written in 2008 by a wonderful writer, Lina Gedichu Ayenu from Ethiopia. Uh, These are all available on Amazon. I'll share the links and and, and make sure that you guys can have them. Mm -hmm. But that's a great kind of primer and starter. It touches on, it's no depth, but it's a lot of breadth. So The Complete Beginner's Guide to China-Africa Relations. Uh, I think uh, Howard French's book is excellent. China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. Absolutely. Uh, I actually had two Howard French books on my top 10 list because I think everything under the heavens, how the past Helps shape China's push for global power, talks a lot about how the Chinese see power. And, and he's focused a lot on what they're doing in Asia, but I think there's a lot of applications of that in Africa as well. And understanding the history of Chinese power execution, I think, is really interesting. So both Howard French books, I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, two more, just very quickly, China, Africa, and the Future of the Internet. Kobus, please help me. Ingenio... gagliardone gagliardone China, Africa, and the Future of the Internet. This is an amazing book. And he really, and again, so much of what's happening now with Huawei is really about setting 5G standards and next generation standards. Also, think about the fact that the Chinese are not only building those telecom networks. They're also building air traffic controls uh, networks. They're building standards for railway networks Mm. and things like that. So it's it's so broad and so deep that uh, that's that book. Last one. Um, I think, and you guys did a two-part show, Has China Won, the Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Uh, There's a lot of interesting insights that apply to Africa. uh, Kaiser, the author
2: you did the two-part interview with? Kishore Mawubani. There we go.
3: I thought there was a lot of great insights in that book that are also applicable to Africa.
2: Fantastic, Kobus?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would just add one. Actually, um, like Eugenio's book is really good. Like, it's it's um, it's a great primer for people who are interested in China-Africa uh, um, relations as it relates to issues like Huawei and the, the general kind of like anxiety about Chinese surveillance in um, in you know kind of in the rest of the world. Um, particularly because he, he focuses on Africa, but then he also really kind of digs into a lot of the assumptions that people have, including things you know kind of pointing. Showing how Western company, country companies are, are frequently just as as culpable um, in terms of, of facilitating surveillance as Chinese companies are. So this is a really great read. Um, the other one I would add is shaping the future of power, um, knowledge production, and network building in China-Africa relations by Lina Ben Abdallah. Yeah, it's just out. It's really good. It, it focuses on um, on exactly this kind of skills transfer and and the the training um, the like. There's thousands and thousands, you know, tens of thousands of African officials, including in military officials, law enforcement officials, and so on, getting training in, in China every year. And she really does a deep dive into that. Um, it's really great. Yeah,
2: we, we did a show with her some years ago. Uh, we were up in Madison, Wisconsin, and we taped a show with Lena. And she's going to be on our show again to talk about some of the research that she's done uh, with the Social Science Research Council uh, in, in hopefully just a few weeks. Uh, she's terrific. And her stuff on yeah on agricultural extension and yeah yeah she's she's fantastic we've had her
3: on a couple times and she's great that's right and she's also an expert in china africa military military relations which is also another really interesting area to explore
2: which is what we're going to be talking to to her about or among other things we've got a couple of those on on peacekeeping efforts in, in in on the continent um, and finally, could can, can each of you shout out an episode or two from the back catalog that people do your show would definitely wanna to listen to for you know, a taste of what you do for you know, shows with especially insightful guests or or compelling topics. Just a couple each.
1: Um, one of my favorites is uh, a dub as an episode that we did with with two guests at once um one is Water Maya, who's a Ghanaian uh, video blogger um, very outspoken very funny um and then matt uh, Tienjie, who is uh, he-, he runs a blog called the chubli opinion blog um which is
2: yeah we love matt Tienjie. Yeah. oh
1: yeah yeah um and so so we had each of them kind of talking about about their kind of home audience's perception of china Africa relations and it's crazy Easy, how different it is and like also how different their approaches are it's just very funny kind of to, to compare the two and that was specifically in response
3: to Guangzhou as well and how the different perceptions of what happened in Guangzhou yeah yeah that
2: was a great episode and I, I love yeah he's very funny and Tianjie is a, a treasure he really is he's just incredible
3: yeah so the one that I like goes back in December 6th 2019 so last December we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Henry Chierme who was in the Treasury and Debt Management Division of the Ghanaian Ministry of Finance. Now that sounds rather technical, but what was so great about it was we got to hear from a guy who's sitting at the table with the Chinese. And one of the things that the narratives that we hear from, particularly from people like Mike Pompeo in the State Department, is about the debt trap narrative and whatnot, which all implies that the African stakeholder is passive and somehow victimized, that the Chinese are doing something to the, to people like Henry Chairmay, you know, and they may not understand it. It's so condescending, patronizing, and fundamentally inaccurate. And when you hear from a guy like Henry, and he, he maps out exactly how they approach this $2 billion bauxite uh, resource for infrastructure deal. And it's just so exciting to be able to hear directly from people who are sitting at the table and can articulate why they're doing it, what the rationale is. And it changes so much and it undermines those simplistic discussions about debt traps or that the Chinese are somehow manipulating this. Because you actually see the African stakeholder, in this case, Henry, uh, just... Sharp as attack, really just, you know, they know exactly what they want, like a laser beam, and they're getting it. And he the title of the show is Why Ghana's two billion dollar resource deal with China is not as risky as critics charge. Highly recommend that episode.
2: Yeah, that was a great episode. And it echoes so many of the things I keep hearing from other people like Anzet who we talked to together on a show once. You know, and and it's it's stripping away of agency this idea that you know you don't know what's best for you or you will be victimized i mean it's it's i can imagine how maddeningly condescending and
3: and and just by the way that that line of thinking doesn't work in africa despite the fact that american stakeholders continue day in and day out to bring it up and i was just in a in a conference last week and there it was. There's the debt trap. I almost time it. It was like eight minutes and 34 seconds. There, First debt <laughs> trap reference. It's like, really? And, and again, the point is the fact that they're just not listening to what people on the continent are saying to them. And that is the, that's the biggest crime here. And, and so it's just, it's ineffective. People tune it out. And Cobus and talks of quite a bit. And one of the things we hear constantly from our African guests is we're fed up of being lectured to by, by the U.S. and Europe absolutely fed up and it's great to see that that assertion of of power and agency
2: well i think all of our listeners to Seneca uh would do well to subscribe also to the china africa podcast which is just such a fantastic resource and you can hear just these voices and just these sorts of correctives to these tired narratives eric and Cobus, what a delight to have you both on a heartfelt congratulations on hitting 500 shows that is really quite an accomplishment so, uh, give yourselves a round.
3: Well, we just have to. We have to. We owe both of you a big debt of gratitude yes. as well. Not only by, by, by the fact that we're part of the. The Seneca Network now, that's more recently, but you guys have very much been role models for us for all these years. Nally, na. <laughs> we've seen how you've grown this amazing show. And and we and we've learned enormous amounts from your show. And we again, it's just it's really fantastic, you know, to be able to be a part of this network. And some you're two guys that I've admired for for just for a long, long time. So so I'm honored to be a part of this and really humbled by the fact that we've been able to do five hundred shows.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Well, yeah. it
2: just goes to show when you put an American in a South African together, all things are possible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that) <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let's move on now to recommendations, shall we? Uh, first, I want to quickly remind everyone that the best way to support the work that we do, the work that all of us do, really, uh, is to subscribe to SubChina Access. And while you're at it, also make sure to sign up to the China Africa Project's fantastic newsletter. CObus, can you tell our listeners where they can do that? It's at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Slash subscribe. Three
3: bucks for three months. Give it a try. It's really a great <laughs> it, deal. It's
2: it's it's just <laughs> great. I, I I love your design and and the readability of the thing. It's just, it's a great newsletter. I love it.
0: Well, just to you know uh, endorse that recommendation of their newsletter, which uh, we are find ourselves poaching ideas for uh, for our uh, text newsletter. So uh, the admiration is mutual. We're we're learning uh, plenty from you, Eric and Kobus. Uh, But my recommendation, my main one, is sort of connected to this theme of uh, African officials uh, being tired of being lectured to. It's a book called I Didn't Do It For You, How the World Betrayed a Small African Nation. and It's about Eritrea, which is now one of the poorest and most repressive countries on earth. But there's many, many reasons why it's ended up that way. And a lot of them are, uh, are to do with how... European countries, uh, the US uh, and Russia, uh, basically abused, abused and abandoned uh, this uh, small country and its people. Uh, A very readable book by a writer named Michela Wrong.
2: Michela is M-I-C-H-E-L-A. Okay, great. That's a great suggestion. I'm going to put that on my list. Uh, Kobus, you're up. What do you have for us?
1: Um, Eric mentioned them very briefly. We are, um, uh, you know, uh, we are partners with the Africa-China Reporting Project at WITS University in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, re- are really a unique outfit. They they are part of the journalism school at WITS and they support and fund um, investigative reporting on China-Africa issues, and they've done so for years. The archive is massive. They they've supported journalists up and down the continent. They've placed work in very very prestigious publications. Applications all around the world. Um, they really, their work is really unique and and would be irreplaceable. Um, you can check out their work at AfricaChinaReporting.co.za. Re- uh,
2: excellent, excellent.
1: And they actually were responsible
0: for Corbus and I meeting in the flesh because they sent me to Johannesburg yes. to take part in one
2: of their annual forums. Uh, I remember. Yes. yeah. We we ran a show that was based on uh, on the work that you did out there, Jeremy. Yeah. Um Eric, what about you? What do you have for recommendation this week?
3: I have a two-part recommendation. First, it's the Twitter feed of Jude Moore. Jude is the former Minister of Public Works in Liberia. He's also a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. In many ways, and again, subscribers to our newsletter will know that I've been showcasing his writing lately. He is in so many ways becoming the strongest voice for the US China Africa kind of, uh, you know, nexus that's there. And and he's been writing extensively on this. So his Twitter feed is at Jude Moore, uh, Jude, G-Y-U-D-E underscore M-O-O-R-E. And he's written three really compelling essays on U.S.-China, the new Cold War, as he calls it, or the new era in China-Africa relations, as Bill Bishop refers to it, which is also our uh, style guide as well. Um, But he wrote an essay last, uh, let's say, on the 21st of August in the Mail and Guardian, which is a uh, South African newspaper. A new Cold War is coming. Africa should not pick sides. And what he's so good at is looking at Africa's relationship critically with both the United States and with China. And again, he says neither one is going to be a good fit for Africa's long term. And Africa has got to be able to chart its own course and make sure it doesn't get caught up in this new era of China-Africa relations or China-U.S. relations that is potentially very, very treacherous for Africa.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Two-part recommendation. So the Twitter feed of Judy Moore and the article from Mail and Guardian. Okay, right, right. Okay. Um, I'm going to recommend a book that happened to be free on Audible that I I, I stumbled on. Uh, it's called The Republic of Pirates, Being the True and Surprising Story of the Caribbean Pirates and the Man Who Brought Them Down. It's by a guy named Colin Woodard, and it was written in 2007. The inspiration for me wanting to read this was... um uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is that we had taped a show with, uh, a, an American diplomat named Leland Lazarus, and I was trying to acquaint myself better with the geography of the Caribbean, which I'm pretty, you know, piss poor at, to tell you the truth. I can't, couldn't remember which was the leeward side and the windward, and which were the, you know, the various islands of the Antilles, and which ones were countries. And, uh, but, uh, also not long ago, I, I took a, a week-long trip up to, Stay out in the barrier islands off the Carolina coast. And one of the highlights was this tour with this charming sort of captain come tour guide who really knew his pirate lore well and had all sorts of stuff to say about Edward Thatcher, Edward Teach, the, um, you know, Blackbeard and where various wrecks were. And, uh, uh, it was amazing how much sort of pirate lore there was from the early, uh, 18th century, late 17th and early 18th century. Uh, and so I, I, started listening to this book and it turns out that it's deeply researched and it really just lays out the historical context you know about you know the the jacobites about uh you know the spanish and, and english relations and and all the privateers uh just fascinating stuff so it's it's actually it wasn't the kind of um uh, nostalgic romp through those pirate books I read as a kid that I imagined it was going to be, but it's actually pretty serious history and it's, it's a lot of fun. So the Republic of pirates, check that out. Well, gentlemen. Wow. Uh, thank you once again for, for, for joining us. I had such a great time talking to you both. And as always, I, I learned a lot.
1: Thanks so
3: much. It's so cool. Thank you. It was great to be back on the show and we're uh, just so excited to be part of the Sinica network.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, We're so delighted to have you, Jeremy. Great. Great to talk to you as always. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. Thank you, gentlemen. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.